Welcome to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast, featuring Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. All right, welcome to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks with myself, Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. Today, we have the pleasure of having Dr. George Rutherford on, who's been a voice for us during this pandemic. Uh, we remember very distinctly him coming and giving us grand rounds at the orthopedic department very on in the pandemic and how things have shifted and changed very rapidly over those past several months. So once again, thank you, Dr. Rutherford, uh, for joining us. Pleasure. Um, my first question for you, just for our audience, because we have much more of a, a sports medicine audience who's not necessarily uh, up to date with a lot of things. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and kind of your position and where you, where you came to be here at UCSF? Do you want to hear about how I played on two national championship teams? Uh, absolutely. No, I, think <laughs> right. I, was, I was cannon fodder. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so I, I trained in pediatrics and, um, uh, and have always been interested in infectious diseases and tropical medicine. Uh, I, my, uh, undergraduate, uh, I have an undergraduate degree. My undergraduate degrees are in classics and chemistry, and I have a, a graduate degree in uh, medieval history. So I have sort of a long, I have a long look at all this stuff. So kind of the history of epidemics are, are uh, a major scholarly interest of mine. Uh, after pediatrics, um, including a fourth year as a chief resident slash ICU fellow, I was an epidemic intelligence service officer at the Centers for Disease Control and prevention, uh, working on field epidemiology, both in Atlanta, and then the latter half uh, of my, uh, my fellowship at the New York City Department of, uh, of Health, where I ran the immunizations program. Um, so that's all kind of good training for this. I came out to the city, to San Francisco in 1985, transferred by CDC uh, to uh, set up the uh, AIDS programs for the city, uh, surveillance, research, um, public health research, uh, the, those the, the large parts of the prevention programs um, and uh, did that for five years then was at the state health department as chief of infectious diseases and as the state health officer for five years and then I've been in academia since uh, back since 1995 and I spend uh, so I'm a professor of uh, epidemiology uh, and preventive medicine I'm the director of the preventive medicine and uh, general preventive medicine and public health residency program, which is a small residency program that we have. Um, and I um, also uh, work in pediatric infectious diseases, mostly on the research side with, and training. Um, it's a bad day when they have to ask me and to, to attend. And I say, well, what's, what's that drug? You know, I don't know. So, <laughs> I think early on, one of the things that was interesting was that there was kind of two divergent um, media threads. One was if we can if we just get this under control, everything will be good. And from an epidemiology standpoint, early on, there were a lot of, there was a lot of talk about the Spanish flu yeah. and how there was this second surge. Yeah. Um, when in the pandemic did you think that this large winter surge was absolutely predictable and, and or preventable? Uh, in March or April. I mean, this was all, this was just obvious it was going to happen. There were actually three waves of the Spanish flu. People don't really know about the third one, but it was in the spring of 1919. Right. Um, but understand the difference is, is that you had durable immunity from Spanish influenza. People who had it then still don't get H1N1 influenza, right? If you looked at the 2009 outbreak of influenza, the, the, uh, the swine-derived one, the, the, the recombinant one that was, came from Mexico, which actually really came from Central Asia. Um, 
people who were born before 1950 didn't get it, right? And there was the reason was, is that they'd seen circulating strains similar to that in the past. Um, and the progenitor of which was the 1918, 1919 H1N1. And so that has durable immunity associated with, so those waves, actually the third wave was, was fairly small uh, compared to the, uh, to the second wave. The second wave was the huge boost and it had to do with as much with people congregating and coming inside and um, moving around. So remember that Armistice Day was uh, November 11th, 1918. Um, and all the troops moved, all the troops started to move back. And that's what really, you know, that amplified it as much as anything, although it was already amplified before then. So you know, with the way everything was looking in the spring, summer, and uh, kind of the inevitability of where we are now, uh, do you think the professional and um, college organized sporting activities should have returned like they have? Oh, I think it's okay. I mean, you know, it's the it's a sort of Roman emperor um, formula of bread and games, right? You know, pani et ludi. Uh, that uh, you know, you need to you know, you need something to hang on to, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, people say, well, it's the most, most, uh, the safest professional sport. I said, oh, you're big wave surfing. Okay. Cause <laughs> right. You know, yeah. Duh. People don't think of that though. It's not well televised. Um, but I, I think baseball did. Okay. Okay. Basketball did spectacularly well, uh, with a huge dint of effort though. And, you know, football has been kind of on and off. Um, it's, you know, it's tough. It, it's, it's tough. And it's, it's especially tough when the campuses are open and all that life is in front of you. Um, so I think it's, it's tough for the, for the college players. Um, and even, you know, the professional players who are like all of 25 years old, there's not that much difference. Right. Um, and um, so I, it's, you know, it's a, I think we, I think we've done okay. Not, not, not fabulously great, but I think we've done pretty well. Uh, and it does, you know, it does provide um, entertainment for the, you know, for people who are bored out of their gourds. You know, a lot of times what we'll hear kind of on the ESPNs and the, and the, the Sports Illustrated is that, you know, whenever you hear about professional athletes or college athletes getting tested, that it's a, these resources could be allocated to the greater community. Do you think that's true, that there's no. this, this large amount of resources going to them and it's taking away from other, other areas? No, I mean, these, these are all purchased, right? So it's, you know, it's, it's not like it's sitting around being used, right? It's, I mean, maybe to a certain extent, it's, it's overdone. Um, you know, so college football players now are tested daily, which is way too much. It, it probably only needs to be about three times a week. Um, but, you know, the, the labs are dedicated to this and they're not going to do, you know, they're not going to go down and, and start doing the mission studies or, you know, or going out to uh, Fruitvale and start doing those studies, you know, we, we really, I mean, while, yeah, there, while there was a big crush at Thanksgiving and people wanting to get, uh, get tested so they could do exactly what they shouldn't have done and exactly why we're in the situation we're in now to go travel to see grandma, um, you know, that's exactly what shouldn't have happened. There was a crush. Yes, there was a crush on testing then, but it's eased up again and, and we're able to get people tested who need to be tested. People who are symptomatic or, or known contacts. I really like the idea that big wave surfing is probably the safest thing we can do right now, especially with- It's, it's sort of counterintuitive, isn't it? You know? 
Unless you're the one out there facing the <laughs> yeah, big well, that's it, you know, <laughs> that, that coral at Makaha is pretty sharp. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were out, we were out yesterday and I, one of my kids definitely learned the difference between summer and fall ocean beach and winter ocean beach. Um, <laughs> but she survived. Um, you know, a lot of us deal with youth sports and we cover high school sports and obviously, and obviously those aren't really going on in the Bay Area. Yeah. What, do you, what are your feelings about the return of youth and club sports? And we can talk about high schools separately. Yeah. So my kids all, all rode, or not all of them, but the, the last four rode. And so rowing is something that's been going on. Now, they don't put eight people in a boat, but they do pairs and singles. I, you know, that's like big wave surfing, right? It's, it's pretty straightforward. You know, you're by yourself and, and go to it. I, I, I think club sports, um, it depends on what the sport is. Uh, I think there's certain sports that are more amenable to transmission, like wrestling, just as an example, uh, and others that are less amenable to transmission. And then there are a whole ton that are in, in between, like lacrosse and soccer and you know, I don't know what else, but, you know, other things that basketball where they are, there, there are major club presences and um, you could potentially have transmission. I, I think pretending that this isn't going on and just letting them go is not going to work. Uh, and so if they are really going to come into close contact without masks on, um, then I think you have to work out some sort of screening program until they can get, get them vaccinated. Yeah, it was interesting. About a month ago, there was that um, basketball tournament a little bit east of Sacramento where the 49ers used to have their training camp up in Rockland. Yeah, and yeah. apparently there was another AAU basketball tournament um, in Santa Clara, which was essentially so shut down that the 49ers had to leave, but they snuck in a basketball tournament, where which is now being labeled as another hotspot. <clears throat> so it's definitely tough. And we've you know there are more and more articles now that people are leaving the Bay Area so kids can go play soccer in Texas or in the Midwest because that's their kid's passion. Um, and there's certainly a balance we have to strike. We can't make everybody big wave surfers or um, single Thank boat. Thank God for that, right? There'd be no room at the no lineup. Yeah. What do you, um, Dr. Rutherford, what do you think about, um, you know, obviously there's been tons of uh, information about the vaccine and, and, you know, kind of priorities. Where do you, because we're dealing with sports, where do the professional athletes or, you know, kind of college athletes, where do you think they fall in line uh, in terms of when they get the vaccine? And do you think there will be private purchase of vaccines? I don't, I, first of all, I don't, there, there will be no private purchase of vaccine. I can assure you of that, at least at this, at this juncture. I mean, maybe when we get five or six vaccines uh, approved by next summer, there'll, there'll be some buying around the edges. Um, I don't think, I don't see how they're going to be able to be much of a priority group. Um, you know, you'd have to toss them in with essential workers um, and say that they're um, as important to society as prison guards, where the, everybody in the prisons are already infected. So, you know, it's like we, we have these crazy, um, crazy priorities. Um, the, the whole essential workers thing is a really compl complicated thing because everybody wants to be an essential worker. Now, the three of you, you're at the front of the line, right? come Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or whenever we start, you're going to be it, right? Because you're out there. You're out there doing whatever you do in the ICU, right? Um, yeah, I know. I know. It's, I, I know. I know. <laughs> but maybe they fall out of bread and bed and break their hips or something, you know? Yeah. Um, so if, if I'm in the ICU, I have a tube in my throat. <laughs> I'm not in there seeing a patient. They got lost. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I, uh, I'm thinking um, 
you know, the whole the, the whole thing about essential workers is is a very open thing. So I think everybody say, okay, EMT, okay, okay, police, fire, okay, because fire really does EMT. Prison guards, or oh, you know, okay, you know, the the median prevalence at a prison now is about sixty percent of of the inmates have been infected. This is why we know about herd immunity, courtesy of San Quentin and Avenal. Um, you know, uh, teachers, teachers now say that they're essential workers. We got to get the schools open. If that's the cost, okay, I'll toss that in. How about how about like farm workers, the guys who pick the crops, you know, and then the and the food chain, right? I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, okay, how about Amazon? Okay, since that's how we get everything, yeah, probably. You know, I mean, it just goes the list goes on and on and on. And CDC actually had an had an MMWR article about it and estimated that 47 percent of the workforce could be considered essential workers. I'm going to throw in Etsy because when I get bored on Zooms and I'm done with Amazon, I go to Etsy. So Etsy people are essential for me. Yeah, there you go. Okay, 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 okay. But, you know, it's not going to be the Warriors. I mean, they, 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 they just do it on the they, – they, they're going to get out of it by testing. And then when it comes time, they'll get, they'll get it like everybody else. Um, with the professional sports leagues, um, like, do you think their return to play protocols are like, rational and in line with best practices? Or yeah, I, I think they're irrational to the you know or, or excessive. They're not they're they're not missing low, believe me. Um, and you know the 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 trick is I mean, there's a certain failure rate with testing, right? They're false positives, and you know which we don't really care about. As long as it's not you who's the false positive, um, the false negatives are what we're what we're worried about, and those occur, right? They just occur, and um, I, I think antigen testing has been a big stride forward as opposed to PCR testing because antigen testing is um, it, it's it's really about the acute rise in in in, uh, in antigenemia and in um, uh, viral carriage in the in the uh, nose and throat. It's when people are most infectious, and that's what you're really worried about. You know, you don't care that they had it two weeks ago. Who cares? Um, except me, people like me who are interested in prevalence and stuff like that. But aside from that, aside from that, I, I think it's really about acute infection and the antigen test. If you do them frequently enough, like every three days um, or, or every two days, are, are adequate for, for picking that stuff up. Yeah, you're going to miss a few, but you're going to catch them on the next one, right? So... Um, I, I think it works. I think it works pretty well. And then the the pro leagues actually were using PCRs, and they were using nasopharyngeal PCRs. Um, now you know. Now we can have. Then they rapidly moved to salivary ones. So the saliva ones are really good, uh, and they're saliva based home collected PCRs now that are coming out. Um, uh, qualitative PCRs like LAMP and isothermal PCRs. Swell, great, go for it. Um, and you, but you have to, you know, it's expensive. Uh, and but I think it's a perfectly reasonable way to try and prevent disease. And then also with isolation and quarantine. And that's why you get into such problems with high school, high school, college football teams, is that everybody gets quarantined. Um, and so that there's a, um, and the other thing is, is that if you get poor standards of testing, especially with point of care testing with people who don't know what they're doing, you can also get into deep trouble, right? So Stanford um, had a, um, played Oregon in their first game of the season like three weeks ago. 
Um, and it was, um, you know, uh, they were, they tested them every day. Everybody was fine. They go to Eugene, they have some crap uh, facility set up to test everybody on day of game. And they had two false positives, which, oh, by the way, happened to be the Stanford quarterback and the best wide receiver in Stanford loss. So I, I ascribe this all to sloppy, you know, sloppy CLIA things. So, so it's, you know, junk, junk. Um, so you got to be really careful with this stuff because otherwise we're going to lose to Oregon, right? So which can't happen, right? Yeah. Just, sorry, the other thing I like besides surfing, you know. <laughs> Uh, kind of piggybacking off that that school comment, I mean, I think obviously in this area, there's a lot of questions about school reopening. Uh, yeah. What do you, you know, in terms of, of your thoughts on that, obviously we, we all have kids and, and we all see the benefit of sending our kids to school, but there's obviously our neighbors and we always have questions. Maybe Brian doesn't want to send his kids to school, but what are, you, what are your thoughts on particularly the lower than K through five school openings and what they should be doing at the schools? So, so if you remember, I'm a pediatrician, so I follow this pretty closely. I think K, K through five can open tomorrow. Right, they, they need a little bit of modification. They need some protocols. They need to cut the class sizes down so they get their smaller pods in case there's their outbreaks. The British just published their experience and it's like, you know, some stuff happens, but not much, right? Kids get infected by adults. Kids who get infected by adults get infected at their houses almost exclusively. And the ones who don't get infected at their houses get infected by their teachers and the teachers got infected at their houses. You know, that's the chain, right? It's not kid to kid or kid to teacher up until they're up until puberty. And then all bets are off, right? It's just like it's like a, you know, it's like a college fraternity party without the beer, right? It's just, you know, stuff's gonna be uh, stuff's gonna be everywhere. Um so you know, it, it that's the I, I see the high schools as a big problem. As you know, the in the with the Pfizer vaccine there, the, the vote of the uh, FDA advisory panel was 17 to four to one with one abstention. The four no votes were from pediatricians who thought that they dropped the age to, and the indication is 16 and 17 year olds because the trial started at 18. Okay, 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 okay. The difference biologically, physiologically between a 16 year old and an 18 year old are not much in terms of the immune system. And I, I don't think it was a, you know, it was not a big stretch, I, I don't think. And I, I actually really like the idea of being able to get down to 16 because then you can start immunizing some, uh, some high school kids and make high schools uh, safer. Um, but, you know, there is this open question about whether vaccination, vaccination eliminates carriage and transmission. It clearly eliminates a spectacular advancement for eliminating disease. But for eliminating transmission and carriage, it's still an open question. So. You need, to, you need to get a ton of kids vaccinated in order to sort of get to herd immunity, I'm afraid, in high schools, but, you know. But what do you, what do you think has been the biggest surprise over the past year throughout this whole pandemic experience? Oh, how bad it's been. Um, I mean, we, there's a, this is really interesting. This is my, my newest passion, trying to figure out about the great influenza epidemic of 1890. Um, there is a major school of thought um, emerging that that was a coronavirus outbreak. Um, and it was went through the same thing, multiple waves, crappy immunity. Um, you know, nobody knows what's going on. Uh, the, one of the alpha coronaviruses diverged right at that point in time. 
it was a bovine strain. And so that looks like it was a crossover event. You know, could easily have happened. And um, I mean, I, I think that if I'd known that, I would have been much more sanguine about the about the prospects of being able to control this. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you live in New Zealand, you can control it. Okay, I'll give you that. If you live in China and you can test 11 million people in three days in a city the size of Los Angeles, yeah, okay, you can control it. But, you know, given where we live and what the laws are and what the expectations are and what the limits of power are, um, it was always going to be tough. Uh, and especially when it got so politicized so early on. Um, and this conflation of, of, you know, the Bill of Rights with wearing masks is just, you know, you know that, that has not been helpful. Um, we don't have a conflation between the Bill of Rights and stopping at stop signs when you drive. But driving is a privilege, I guess. You know, so you get, you get, as we all learned in driver's ed, so it's uh, you know we can, maybe that's not the the best analogy. But yeah, I, I mean, I was surprised at how crazy and political it got. But I shouldn't have been, I guess. All right. So for our final question, and we want to respect your time, um, I'm tempted to ask about big wave surfing or at least moderate wave surfing, but. Um, leap forward five years from now, when we look back on this, what do you think the biggest advance in healthcare that changes um, changes how either we practice medicine, how we deliver medicine, or how healthcare has changed? What do you think that will be? I think the biggest advance is going to be telemedicine, right? I've, I had some experience. We did a trial of telemedicine, uh, teledermatology, which actually can work, right? And we did it in Brazil for prison. Uh, so it's like everybody had paracoxidioidomycosis and weird stuff like that. These weird sort of fungal diseases, but it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I'm, you know, my internist colleagues go on and on and on about telemedicine all the time. Um, you can imagine how doable it is in something like psychiatry, right? I don't know about you guys, um, but it seems to me that you need to touch things and, and, uh, you know, and manipulate them and stuff. But, for some of the, for some of the, uh, uh, I won't say cognitive specialties. For some of the other types, non-surgical specialties, um, it's, you know, I think that's going to be one huge, big thing. The other thing is, I think we're going to probably get more point of care testing for everything from, you know, I mean, we have it now for for pregnancy, but, you know, beyond that, I think we're going to see a lot more point of care testing and and uh, and home based uh, point of care testing. Um, that, that technology, the fluidics technology, the, um, the kind of diagnostic technology is really ramping up rapidly and can do a whole range of things across the board. So, you know, you can call into your doctor with a diet, with your own self-diagnosis of colon cancer or, you know, whatever, right. And, or that you have troponins or, you know, and, you know, it, it's going to get, it's going to get very weird, I think, very quickly and very different than what, than what, not maybe for you guys, but for, I think for the internists, it's going to get very weird very quickly because people are going to be doing a lot more self-diagnosis and they're going to come becoming with, going to be coming in with, you know, some laboratory test that says they have this or that. So basically you're saying, this seems like a plug for a Stanford dropout and Theranos and little boxes in our houses to diagnose everything. Um, and then we can just yeah. call it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I don't think it's a good thing. I mean, I, but it's, you know, I mean, we do have an access problem, right? 
we spend a zillions, 17 billion at last, 17 trillion at last count, you know, 17% of our gross national product on, maybe it's not 17 trillion, but anyway, we spend 17% of our gross national product on healthcare and countries with which we compete in manufacturing like Germany and stuff, play, spend less than 10%. So that difference is all added to the cost of goods and services. So it's anti-competitive. We got to bring that down. It's got to be ratcheted down. I don't know that, I don't know that, um, uh, that, you know, telemedicine and, and home-based diagnostic kits are the way to do it, but you know, it's going to have to be, you know, that's something we need to address and we've sort of failed to address it for, uh, since the end, since before world war one, when the first kind of, um, idea about, uh, national healthcare came down the pike in the U S and it got labeled as a German plan. Uh, so, you know, we love to demonize those things and, you know, I think ACA went a long way to do it, but, you know, obviously that has, that has lots of, that's not everybody's a big fan. So we'll have to see how it plays out, but it's something that has to be brought under control. And then uh, our last question for you, Dr. Rutherford, just because everyone always asks us that, and we're probably the worst people to answer this question, but when will things get back to quote normal? Um, this time next year. It depends. It depends on how many people get vaccinated, you know? If we end up with 30% of the people vaccinated, like we do for flu, it's, gonna, it's never going to get back to normal. It's going to have, this is going to have to go through the population. And it'll end up like the, you know, one of the, the 1890 alpha coronaviruses was a cause of, you know, of occasional cause of, of uh, lower respiratory tract disease. You know, we don't want that to happen. That'll cost another, you know, lots and lots of deaths. Just to tell you, in San Francisco, in 1918, 1919, there were 3,000, San Francisco was half the size it is now. It was 300, less than half, it's 350,000 people. There were 3,000 deaths from influenza. So far in San Francisco, there've been 163 deaths from SARS-CoV-2 infection. That's the difference that all this stuff is making, plus the sophistication of the intensive care system, plus all the you know, magical drugs that have, uh, that have come out and are you know, used by certain people. You know, that's the difference that that's, uh, that that's made. And, you know, if we just sort of throw up our hands and say, you know, uh, get vaccinated if you want to and everybody else go, go about your business, that mortality rate's going to go way back up to the sky. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us today, Dr. Rutherford. This is a, a really important information for our audience, which typically just cares about meniscus tears and ACL tears and who's going to win the football game next weekend. So we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I got much. some of that in, you know, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast featuring Dr. Mira Bundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. We look forward to hearing your feedback and hope you look forward to our next episode. Thank you.